Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And we did have a great time in the Lord today, didn't we? Uh, on your bulletin, we have uh, just a hint as to what today was all about. All these pictures of grandparents. And I, I wore that tie this morning. If you didn't hear my explanation and you viewed uh, what we were doing this morning, it kind of appeared from a distance that I forgot to wear a tie and that there were these handprints and footprints on my shirt uh, as my coat was open. But the truth is, it's a white tie that was a special design tie for our grandchildren some six years or so ago to place their prints on and, and uh, just, just to remind us of the blessing of being grandparents. And today we learned that there is a spiritual role that we have to play and a responsibility and a privilege as we recognized all of our grandparents and great-grandparents and had a prayer of dedication. I do believe in the principle of to the third and fourth generation. And that is that the things that we do today will impact those who come after us for three to four generations, both blessings and cursings, although our children and their children are not responsible for our sin, but they may bear some consequences in some way. And so it's important that we are the right kind of grandparents, role models. And uh, by the way, I wanted to let you know that when we went offline this morning, when we had the offertory, the pastor provided the offertory, God gave me a new song on Friday. And, and without, this is not to brag, but just to give the glory to God. Uh, he gave me a song in about five minutes' time, and we will be recording that. It won't be going into the queue for the devotionals, but it will be sometime in November that you'll see it uh, up and be part of the devotional scheme of things on schedule. So uh, God has spoken to my heart about writing more songs, and uh, we will be doing that. So there we go. All right. Now, uh, if you don't have a bulletin, if you're viewing online, you can tap in the right place and get yourself a digital copy. Well, would you take your Bible with me tonight and turn in the Word of God as we seek to answer the question uh, about this business of suffering, about this business of brokenness, of hurting. I want you to turn with me to the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. We'll be in both the New and the Old Testaments. And those of you who were able to join us yesterday for Bible Institute, you know we were all over the Bible even though the main text was in the book of Genesis. Read ahead and go up online if you haven't already. 1501 was our session for yesterday. And right now, counting YouTube and Facebook, we've had over 100 visits and so we hope to have uh, 100, perhaps several hundred students this year in, enrolled in our course. And so pray about that, that we'll be a blessing. We want to be a blessing to others. All right, we're in Luke chapter 4. I trust by now that you have found it. And of course, Luke chapter 4 is one of two places in the Gospels where we have recorded the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Now, he was not dragged by the devil out there, but he was led of the Spirit. And because of that, because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and because he was depending upon the Word of God, he uh, had the victory over the devil in the temptation that we find recorded here in the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. And we come down to verse 12, 
And Jesus answering said unto him, the devil, in other words, it is said thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now I take that to mean that all during those three plus years of earthly ministry, Jesus Christ was dogged by the devil. And we know that is probably the case because we find uh, the opposition was vehement. Uh, the speech was vitriolic. We know that those that came against him were extremely critical. And Jesus Christ gives us a pattern of dealing with the devil, not just in one temptation, one grand temptation, but throughout uh, his entire earthly ministry, as we face the world, the flesh, and the devil day by day, we can take a page from our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus returned, notice, Notice the next few words, in the power of the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit. Dr. Tom Malone, uh, in a message in the Sword of the Lord back in 1975, said the problem with America, the problem with the world, the problem with the church is all the same. It all boils down to this. We don't have a lot of Christians who are filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. We're lacking the Holy Spirit's power in our life. Now you may think that the power of the Holy Spirit is only necessary for extraordinary things as we measure them. But the power of the Holy Spirit ought to be a constant flow out of our life. That we ought to be that channel that demonstrates the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit moment by moment. So he returns in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. So word spread. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. He gives the pattern of the shepherd to all those under-shepherds who will come after. And what was it that Peter, in echoing what Jesus commissioned him to do in the 21st chapter of John's Gospel in that meeting on the shore, what did Peter say about the responsibility of the shepherd to the sheep? Feed the flock of God. The primary responsibility of the God-called man is to feed the flock of God. The responsibility of the pastor is to make sure that the care and the feeding of the flock, the church of Jesus Christ, is properly cared for. My father, who has now been in heaven for 13 years, used to caution me. He would tell me constantly, he'd say, Brad, put your time into your messages, into your preparation. And I learned from him and from other mentors uh, I heard by way, secondhand, of a student of J. Frank Norris, that Norris used to teach all of his pastoral students, the most important preparation is the preparation, not of the message, but of the messenger. The preparation of the individual. We need to get alone with Jesus, and we need to absorb all the truth that He wants us to have. And when we learn how to walk with Jesus, we can show other people by example how to walk with Jesus. We can teach them by precept because it's not just intellectual exercise, but rather it's experiential. And that's what it needs to be. And so he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. So they're, they're getting out of his teaching that which is necessary and that glorifies, that glorifies the Lord. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he's going back to his hometown. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. May I stop you for just a moment? And let's consider what a synagogue is. A synagogue was 
basically a teaching place. A teaching place. Copies of the scripture, scrolls, were stored there. And a rabbi, a local teacher, would be the overseer of that synagogue. Synagogues were present throughout the Mediterranean, the known world, wherever there were enough uh, Jewish men uh, who were wage earners could afford to maintain uh, such an enterprise. And so Nazareth was one of those places. Of course, it's up in Galilee. It's in the north. And this is where he would go on the Sabbath. The Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday, and it ends at sundown on Saturday. That is the day set aside for rest. And uh, during that time, uh, they would sometimes consort. Uh, they would go uh, to the synagogue. They would be taught as, it, as they are here on the Sabbath day. And he stood up for it to read. So he has the privilege. He is recognized. Now he is of full age. He is a, about 30 years of age, we read. So he's standing up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. So it, he has the scroll of Isaiah. Usually Isaiah scrolls comprise two or three in number. Uh, and so uh, he selected the correct scroll. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now he is quoting from Isaiah 61 in our Bible. So you can look there if you would like. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now he is reading. If you have the words of Jesus in red, you see that he is reading. He is quoting the Word of God from Isaiah. It is inspired and he is quoting it. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me, now say it with me, to heal the broken hearted. Say it again. To heal the broken hearted. Jesus Christ is reading the scripture from Isaiah and he's personally applying it and he's saying that he has been sent to heal the broken hearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. If you're following along in Isaiah 61, parallel to what we're reading here in Luke chapter 4, you realize that he stopped <clears throat> mid-verse. He stopped <coughs> right in the middle of a thought that is continued by Isaiah. The middle of verse 2. And he stops there for a reason. He stops there because he has stopped at the point that applies to his earthly ministry rather than going on to that which has to do with vengeance, which would be in the future for him. He is truly telling us that we, as He was, should be dispensationalists. Jesus Christ was a dispensationalist. He was using the Scripture, applying the Scripture to Himself, as you're going to see, and He stops mid-verse. Sometimes there is a dispensational break in the middle of a thought, in the middle of a verse in the Bible. We understand that. I have some verses marked in my Bible where there, there occurs a jump of a thousand or a thousand and seven years in the middle of a verse. That's what you get for being a dispensationalist. But what you get is right interpretation. We rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. Can I get an amen? And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister in other words, the presiding individual, and sat down. 
And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the Scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, that Scripture from Isaiah, according to Jesus, was about Jesus Christ on that day and in that place. You know that you and I can do the same thing for that Scripture which is taken in context that the Lord gives to us and impresses upon our heart. Every chapter, every verse, every line. Every promise in the book is mine. Now, I realize we have to be proper in our hermeneutics, and in our interpretation. We have to be correct in placing everything in its proper context. But here he says, this is fulfilled in your ears right now. And all bear him witness and wondered at the, notice the words, the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. What does Luke mean? as he writes by inspiration, commenting on Jesus quoting Isaiah. Gracious words. Gracious words. Is he speaking of the delivery alone? I'm sure that Jesus Christ was dynamic. I am sure that the way he presented himself, he got their attention. There's no doubt about that. But once again, the emphasis is upon the words. What's important to God between the covers of this book. Not just the message, not just how we feel about what it says, but what's important is what the words say. That's it. What's the words saying here? And they said, is not this Joseph's son? As far as they knew, Joseph was the legal father. There were always whispers about the origin of Jesus Christ, his parentage, his legitimacy, but they referred to him as Joseph's son. If Jesus Christ were here in our presence, uh, in the context of what they're saying, they knew, knew him as Jesus ben Joseph. In other words, Jesus from Joseph. Jesus, the son of Joseph. And legally, he was. And so they were amazed that this carpenter's son could stand up and handle the words which are the words of God. I don't know how many liberals were running around in those days. I, I know there were Pharisees and Sadducees and there were Herodians and, and there were other uh, categories of people. And I know that the Sadducees were liberal. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in life after death. That's why when they tested Jesus Christ, it's a joke when they asked about whose, whose uh, wife will she be in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. But I know this, that those hometown people in Nazareth, without a doubt, had respect and reverence for the Word of God. And they believed it's, it's not the material, the papyrus or the, or the, the uh, animal skin that the words are written on. It's not the ink with which the words are written on the material. The power, the inspiration, the life is in the words themselves. Didn't I teach you yesterday the very words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, when he spoke about the
the words. He says, they are life and they are spirit. And in every sense, listen to me, take note of this, you that are watching right now, you that are here, in every sense, the words themselves, the words themselves that we have in the Scripture today are every bit as inspired as when they were originally breathed out. They're still breathed out. They're still spirit. They're still life in every sense that they were the moment that Paul or Peter or John or Isaiah or Luke or anybody else wrote them. They are still just as much spirit. They are still just as much life. Word of God is quick. It's alive. Sharper than a two-edged sword. Piercing. Piercing. And what Jesus had to say that day, those gracious words pierced. They cut. There are two ways that we see the cutting in the New Testament. Two opposite reactions. There is the cutting, which is the cutting right down to the quick, cutting right down to the very, to the very soul, the cutting of conviction. And then there is that cutting that takes place when a person is cut and they're not convicted, not convicted to repent, but are just angry, convicted because they've been exposed, convicted because they've been laid bare. And that's what occurred when they stoned Stephen. And that's what occurred when the martyrs died with the truth on their lips. And he said unto them, this is verse 23, knowing what's inside of them, he says, ye will surely say, and you can take that to the bank, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. That's what people do. They react in a fleshly way. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah and applies it to himself then and there, he's saying he has been sent to heal the brokenhearted but he anticipates that they're going to turn it around and say, physician, heal thyself. Now let me take you to the scene of the cross for just a moment. And then we're going to ask God to help us to put all this together. There at Calvary, in Matthew's Gospel, if you want to turn back, chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27 in verse 39, Jesus has gone to the cross, and they that passed by reviled Him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, notice this, save thyself. They're taunting Jesus Christ on the cross. Now why is He on the cross? He's on the cross not for His wrongdoing, for He was blameless and sinless. He's on the cross for the sins of mankind. He is there for the purpose He came to seek and to save the lost. He said, And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It was in the heart and mind of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross in the behalf of all those who would believe on Him. So He's hanging on the cross 
not to save himself, not for self-perpetuation or survival. He is there to save us. And so they're taunting him, lost people. For, for Jesus Christ died for lost people, and they're saying, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God. Come on, if thou be the Son of God. Where have you heard that before? Back in the temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. If thou be the Son of God. If thou be the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So they're trying to make the terms. As if Jesus Christ, if he succumbed to the terms of these spiritual terrorists, that they would acquiesce. You don't deal with terrorists. There's only one thing you can do with terrorists, and that is move on with the plan. And that's what he does. He came to do the Father's will. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him. Boy, doesn't that just raise your level of respect for the clergy? Mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. I want you to underscore where they say, save thyself, and they say, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross, and we will believe him. Once again, they're trying to make the terms. You don't make terms. You don't meet the terms of spiritual terrorists. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Let's pray. Father, fill me now with the Holy Spirit. I pray that the things we have to say tonight will be helpful. Help us to do as our Savior has done in this scripture. Help us to apply that which you would have us to take in and absorb and make part of our life and our ministry for you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has to be listed among the most ironic, the most ironic of the scriptures that we have ever seen because they're saying he cannot save himself. He cannot save. And I agree with that himself. He cannot save in terms of what he came to do, who he is and what he came to accomplish. He cannot save himself. Why? Because he is becoming the condemnation. He is becoming the sin offering. He is the Lamb of God. The Lamb can't be spared. You can't say, oh, nice fuzzy Lamb, let's not kill the Lamb. The Lamb cannot be spared. The Lamb has to die. And so He cannot save Himself in terms of what He could do. The same way we ask, you know, these philosophical questions. Uh, is God able, is He capable of creating a rock so big that He Himself could not pick it up? That's just a stupid question based on, you know, the, the, the uh, limited and shallow exercise of the brains that God's put between our ears. The answer is, God does that which is consistent with His nature, with His character, with His will. He doesn't do anything that's outside of the parameters of His will, of His character, of His, of his virtue, who He is. And so, here, they say, Himself, he cannot save. And I have to say to you that that is probably a profound statement without anybody realizing it, who made it. He couldn't save himself. He chose not to save himself. He chose to do the will of the Father. I've always admired doctors, never wanted to be one. Because I noticed that doctors 
have no life of their own. They really don't. If they're a decent doctor, they're spending all their time with their patients. And to get there, they have to be totally sacrificial. They have to spend huge amounts of money to train and to work crazy hours and to be an intern for an interminable length of time before they ever get to be a doctor and spend crazy hours dealing with unreasonable people. All of us who have read all the medical information we can get our hands on and we know what we know and, and we're difficult enough to deal with as it is. How many of you understand what I'm saying tonight? Not up and down. Yes. All right. That's it. So I have never wanted to be a physician. I've always admired them from afar, but I've never wanted to be one. You say, oh, they make a lot of money. Yeah, they probably have time to spend it after they're too old to enjoy it because they work so hard and so long and they are sacrificial people. I have great respect for them. Jesus speaks about healing broken hearts. We have sung about him being the healer. The song that we sang is based upon Isaiah 53. I want you to go there in the Old Testament with me, please. And after Isaiah describes Jesus Christ as not attracting attention to himself, undue attention in the flesh, in verse number 3, he says, in verse number 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, verse number three does not say whose sorrows and whose grief he's acquainted with. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, verse number four explains verse number three. Surely he hath borne whose griefs? Say it, our griefs. And carried whose sorrows? Our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing, as we're going to see, because down in verse number 10, one of the great mysteries of eternity, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, to say it so that we understand it, I believe this takes in the, the theological meaning and, and simplifies it. It appeased or it satisfied the high and holy requirements of righteous God, holy God, to bruise the Savior, Jesus Christ, as He died upon the cross. This is when Jesus Christ becomes our propitiation, and it satisfies those holy requirements of God. So it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath put Him, notice the words, to grief, to grief, to grief. All right, so He hath borne our griefs. It was God's will for Jesus Christ to bear our griefs. It was God's will for Jesus Christ to bear our sorrows. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now transgressions and iniquities are separate descriptions of the same awful subject, sin. We are all sinners. Transgressions mean to cross the line, cross over the line, you know, to uh, trespass. Uh, iniquities has to do with the filthiness, the nastiness, the unseemliness of sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. This is a reference to the peace of the cross. The peace that was, that was achieved because it satisfied God. 
And with his stripes we are healed. Now that one phrase, with his stripes we are healed, has been lifted out of context by the Pentecostal, Neo-Pentecostal, and Charismatic movements, and a number of other folks who are, are, are not uh, uh, very complete in their uh, assessment of this scripture. I will, I will dispel all of that right now. The people who major in physical healing as their ministry have missed the boat. Because sooner or later, we're all going to get ultimately healed. And that's the rapture. And that's when we get our glorified body. Many times when we pray for God's will to be done. I know my charismatic and Pentecostal friends think that, that we don't have the full gospel. The full gospel is Jesus died. He was buried according and rose again according to the scriptures the third day. That is the full gospel. There's nothing added on to that even though the statements of faith of most Pentecostal assemblies and, and uh, other, other groups of, of their kind include a physical healing to be claimed. And when it's not achieved, then the burden falls back on the poor saint who doesn't have enough faith. How many of you have ever heard that? Oh, we don't have enough faith. Didn't have enough faith to get it. Didn't have enough faith to keep it. And that poor saint... I can give you case after case throughout the Old and New Testament where it was not necessarily God's will for the person to be healed physically, but they did get a healing if they went to heaven. And uh, we will all be ultimately healed in the rapture when we get our glorified bodies. Now, let me hasten to say this. I do not dispensationalize away all of God's interventions in the physical realm. If God so chooses and it so glorifies Him to answer our prayers for an individual to be physically healed, that is to receive a reprieve until the next time they're sick or until they die or until the rapture takes place, that is a gracious intervention on the part of God to God be the glory. And I do believe that all healing, not just some, not just some of the miraculous, uh, you know, some of the... Uh, uh, amazing healings that we hear about, but I believe all healing is of the Lord. If you go to the doctor and he prescribes or he gives you a therapy or over the course of time your body comes to a normalcy uh, or whether we just pray and God instantly does something for you, ultimately it was all because God healed you. God permitted. He is the one. He is the healer. So let us understand that. But God is not obligated, like our servant, to heal somebody just because we claim it on the basis of Isaiah 53, 5. Are you listening to me? That's not the basis for us to demand that God heal somebody. God, you said it. By your stripes we're healed. I'm claiming that by your stripes I'm healed. And I heard with my own ears a man who has since fallen from some grace among his assembly's friends, but Jimmy Swaggart actually stood in the pulpit before his Pentecostal hearers and said to them, I don't know why God doesn't heal everybody. So either it is or it isn't. Which is it, Jimmy? Is it that God heals everybody who claims it? Or can you just throw it back in people's faces and say, well, I guess you didn't have enough faith. 
Guess you didn't have enough faith to get it. You didn't have enough faith to keep it. And that is the most cruel and unscriptural thing I can think of. With his stripes we are healed transcends your molecular makeup and mine. The various physical systems of the body. The circulatory and the uh, neurological and, you know, the digestive system and, and all the different systems and all the organic uh, activities of the body. By his stripes we are healed. There is not a name it and claim it portion in the Bible, and it is not here either. No, we pray, Lord, whichever you want. You know, for me to remain here is needful, but if you want to take me, as Paul said to the Philippians, you know, it's, it's far better for me if I go. But if you want to keep me here because it's needful for them, that's all right too. And that's exactly how we pray. There are many things in this world worse than dying. There are many things in this world worse than dying painfully. I'm going to talk a little bit about pain and sorrow here in a few moments. I don't wish it on anybody. And we always pray, Lord, please heal him. If it's your will, please heal him. We want you to heal. We want you to heal her. And we know that God, first of all, as we focus on him, look here. God is a good God. Say it with me. God is a good God. And how often is he good? God is good all the time. So God doesn't just take five minutes out of the day to be nasty and naughty and capricious. He's good all the time, isn't he? So if he chooses to heal for his glory, that his name might be lifted up and people might, you know, give attention to spiritual things, that's wonderful. But if he doesn't, there are far worse things than dying and going to be with the Lord. And one of those is living here out of the will of God. I would rather be dead in the will of God, if I can say it that way, than to be alive out of the will of God. Come on now. That's not even as extreme. You say, that's pretty extreme. That's not even as extreme as one of the church theologians who said it this way. He said, if it's God's will for me to go to hell, I wouldn't be happy in heaven. Now, I know that just stretches your brain all out of space. But that's what one of the theologians said. And it comes back to this. We should be desiring the will of God and to glorify Him first and foremost. The rest of this is somewhat superficial. And claiming that there is a, I can demand a healing if I just have enough, if I work up enough faith, if I just hold on, if I just hang on enough that by His stripes we are healed, why we'll be healed from every kind of thing, every sniffle, every kind of thing, every kind of disease, every kind of problem, every kind of physical ailment. That is foolishness. That is shallow. The healing that's being spoken of here is much broader than just our physical experience. Now, if I truly believed and had the conviction in my heart that God had a work for me to complete, then I would pray night and day. I would pray long and hard. I would get other people to pray that I wouldn't die until I finished that. And by the way, would you pray that for me? But please, when my job is through, when it is finished, as far as my work is concerned down here, please don't keep me here any longer than I need to be here. Amen? I mean, that's, that's it. That's it. Our being here is about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our being here is not about being comfortable and free from all difficulty and challenges and problems and pain. You remember what I said when I started out? What do we do with those unexplained hardships and heartaches in life? I want to show you. And when you take Isaiah 53 and what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, and we put these things side by side, we can agree that Jesus is the healer of broken hearts. And because there are so many of them, lots of them in this world, it is a universal thing. There is pain. People are going to ask, all right, why am I having this pain? Why am I experiencing this pain? Elizabeth Elliot, who has gone to be with the Lord about five years ago, suffered serious dementia in her declining years. But before she did, she was a, a, a much read author and a much demanded speaker. And she had a lot on this subject to say. She said, suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned and learned an indispensable truth. All right, say it again. Suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth. You say, what truth? Well, fill in the blank. Whatever truth do we need to learn? All right. Gabe, I saw you sitting in the back of the class and I saw you put that, that girl's pigtail in the ink and you're going to have to stay after school until you learn your lesson. And included in that, you're going to have to write on the chalkboard 500 times, I will not put Susie's pigtail in the ink 500 times until you learn your lesson. But it's painful for me to stay after school until you learn your lesson. Until you learn the truth. God operates very much like this. Now sometimes it's not a schoolroom discipline that we liken what God is doing in our life. But it may be closer to the truth than we know. 1956, Elizabeth Elliot's Husband, young husband, Jim, is killed by the Aka Indians in South America, along with four of his co-workers. At that time, God, by her own testimony, gave Elizabeth Elliot a very special promise from the Word of God. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, and I know you know this. Isaiah 43 and verse... Two, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Oh, there's a lot of preaching material here. But please notice the presence and the preservation of the person because of the person of Jesus Christ who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. We identify with the one who suffered, not because he sinned, but because we are sinners and we needed a Savior. Nobody else qualified, and so he came. He is the one who voluntarily came and took our place. And he is the one who will take us through the waters. He is the one who will take us through the fire. And when it's all said and done, we will have had that sweet and close communion 
that you cannot have at any other time than when you are suffering the pain and the difficulty of the challenges, the problems that you're going through in life. We talk about being like Jesus, and I've come up with the following. Number one, if we're going to be like Jesus, we'll put others ahead of ourselves. In other words, one word, <coughs> we'll defer. We'll put others ahead of ourselves. I can't demand to go first. I can't demand to have my way. I can't demand to, uh, to have everybody else step out of the way so I can go first if I'm going to be like Jesus. If I'm going to identify with the suffering Savior, then I've got to be willing to defer. So in life, many of the things we're going through, we look at them, we say, well, that, that other fellow, that other gal, they didn't have to go through that. Well, look at them, they're just heading on down life's highway, and here I am, I'm stuck in the ditch. Don't worry about that. There's somebody with you. He's going to go through the water, through the fire with you, and you're going to have a close and intimate and personal encounter with him. Number two, this is what I've discovered. If we're going to be like Jesus, we'll put the needs of others, those desperate needs of others, ahead of our own physical comforts. This is called self-denial. So we defer. We experience self-denial. And number three, if we're going to be like Jesus, this is what I discovered, we're going to be willing to spend and be spent in His cause. It doesn't matter. After all, it is better to burn out. Now, I'm not talking about just being careless, but it's better to burn out than to rust out. It was John the Baptist who said, after he had introduced the Savior, the Lamb of God, he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the spirit. That's it. Elizabeth Elliot has left us a number of books, as I've said. And one of them is entitled, and I would recommend it, Suffering is Never for Nothing. Suffering is Never for Nothing. And that title says it all. There's always a reason. There's always a reason. In the deepest suffering, we learn the deepest lessons. In the deepest suffering, we learn the deepest lessons. We learn to trust Him. We learn to walk by faith. We learn to love Him unconditionally as He has loved us. We love Him unconditionally, even though He is perfect, we're imperfect. We love Him un unconditionally because we don't know what's around the corner, but by faith we love Him unconditionally. And we take Him at His word. And the reason we're going through the trial, the pain, whatever it is we're going through, the problem, is so that some truth that needs to be learned. It may not have anything to do with the little girl's pigtails in an inkwell, but it has to do with whatever it is that we need to learn. And in that pain, we learn lessons. How many of you can say, although we have not, we are far from having arrived. We have not yet apprehended that for which we are apprehended. So we have not yet arrived. But how many of you can say you have tasted and experienced a little bit of what I'm talking about, that in the deepest trials we learn the, the deepest truths? When you have the most pain, what we learn seems to be the most pertinent. It seems to be that which we perceive the most. Yes, there's a broken heart on every bench in the church house. We never run out of them. Sometimes, as I've said, 
I will go through the church directory and I'll pray through the directory. And as I'm praying through the directory, do you know there's not a family or an individual to whom I come as I pray that the thoughts don't go through my mind as the under-shepherd, as the pastor? Those people have had some pain. Those people have had some problems. And then I come down to the end of the alphabet, to the W's, and I find the Brad Winnegars, and I say, those people have had some pain and some problems. Why? The shepherd and his wife are just like the sheep in that respect. We've all had some of that. And that's where we learn the deepest truths. We see the brokenness in every home, the hurt, the pain in every life. The church is not a museum of perfect Christians, but a hospital for sinners. Every one of us have to deal with pain. I just picked up a few thoughts from Spurgeon. I thought I would just add to all of this. He quotes Psalm 11:5, The Lord trieth the righteous. There is a, a crucible in which the Christian is tested and we identify with Jesus Christ. It's, it's, um, it's not painlessness that we are seeking. Painlessness, not pain, is the true enemy. Seeking to avoid the pain altogether by whatever means, some kind of humanistic... Um, Avoidance of difficulty is perhaps the worst move that we can make as believers. Lord, thy will be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Spurgeon says, worldly ease is a great enemy to faith. It loosens the joints of holy valor and snaps the sinews of sacred courage. A hot air balloon doesn't rise until the cords holding it to the earth are cut. Affliction does a similar service for believing souls. While the wheat sleeps comfortably in the husk, it is useless to man. It must be threshed out of its resting place before its value can be known. Thus it is good that God trieth the righteous, for their trial causes them to grow rich toward God. I like that. I don't like the pain, but I like the truth of that. That in the crucible, we identify with Jesus Christ and we are taught those deep truths that we need to know to become and to be what God wants us to become and to be. And then this thought. When Jesus hung on the cross, in the verses prior to what we read from Matthew 27, back in verse 34, they offered Him a painkiller. Do you remember that? And when He realized what it was that they were offering Him, He turned it down. In that same respect, we need to turn down the humanistic painkillers of this world. That is, the, the false comforts of people telling us, oh, it'll be all right. Sometimes the problems and the pain that we go through is the best thing as we're learning God's ways. The hidden truth here, the Savior refused it because He realized He had to experience the deepest misery for you and me to fulfill the will of God. Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I going to lounge on flowery beds of ease? Or am I going to experience the fullness of this test, this trial, this difficulty, so that the Lord might teach me those truths that I need to know? 
Sometimes the pain is almost too much to bear. I recall when I was in revival work and I had to go soul winning with the pastor and I remember up in New York we went door to door every day during the meeting in which I was engaged to preach. And we'd have to stop after every dozen doors or so. There was so much pain. There were so many painful experiences that were being related. It was almost too much. We kept pointing them to Jesus, but it was almost too much. And I know how those who deal in the front lines feel. It's almost too much. But Jesus went through it. And He gives us grace to go through it, that we might learn the lesson, that we might take in the truth. And when we don't personally experience something, God helps us to empathize, to identify with those who are hurting. I'll never forget, as a young pastor in Pennsylvania, my first funeral for a child. I'd never had a funeral for a child before, preacher. Never. This little girl had slid down the embankment on an icy slope and slid in front of a car which slowed and just barely hit her like that. But she died instantly. She was six years old. The good news is, she was six years old. She'd been in our Sunday school. She'd asked Jesus in her heart. Amen. Now, I don't know if six-year-old, in this case, what her situation was. She was, she was either saved or safe. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, but her mom and dad, this was their only child. They were heartbroken. And I struggled, sweetie, I struggled, I wept. I said, Lord, how could I conduct a funeral for a little girl, a little tyke like this? And in the middle of the night, it's like the Lord gave me something. Now, you hear things, I hear things, I don't give any more credence to it than just what I'm going to tell you. I heard a child cry. Don't ask me where the child was that cried, but I heard a child cry. The Lord let me hear a child cry. And in that moment, when I heard that child cry, just in that moment, the Lord began to flood my soul with this empathy that we're talking about. To feel what the parents were feeling. To experience what they were experiencing. Even though I had not experienced it myself. By God's grace to be able to deal with them so that when I sat down to counsel them, they described how that first night, it's as though they heard their child cry. You say, well, preacher, what's, what's the point? The point is this. By whatever audio means that God sought to use in that case, He was telling me that I was on the same page with the people who were suffering. And right now there's somebody in the sound of my voice, somebody that's viewing, that's experiencing some kind of a trial or difficulty. And even though I'm not going through that as the under-shepherd representing Jesus Christ, I can make myself available as Jesus Christ made Himself available instead of looking out for my comfort and saying, I just don't want to be bothered. I could have said, this is too difficult to bury this child. I'm going to turn this over to somebody else. But instead, God gave grace. This is too difficult to deal with the person who is 
battling addiction or they have a loved one who's battling addiction or they've got a family member or a friend who's going through some deep waters or going through the fires of some trial and it's just easy for us to step away and look the other direction and not deal with it. But God can give us grace to be on the same page. Just like Jesus goes with us, we can empathize. God can allow us to have a heart for those that are suffering and those that are hurting. But more importantly, point to the one who is the healer of broken hearts. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Every head bowed, every eye closed. And how many of you tonight would say, Preacher, something in the Word spoke to my heart tonight. Slip your hand up high. Yes, God bless you. That's good. In just a moment, we're going to extend the invitation. And just as the invitation is being offered online to those people who may not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, would you call on the name of the Lord right now? Just ask Jesus in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. And right now I receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. 